chapter 28, starting in verse 1. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief men, of chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Let us pray. O Lord, again as we sung just before reading the scriptures, how firm a foundation you have laid for us, Lord. You sent us your Son, and opened up our eyes that we have believed in him and trusted in him, Lord are promised that we know we are born again and have eternal life. And we thank you so much for that. And we thank you that we can continue to keep safe and grow by your word and be edified. Lord, pray that this time you would help us to be calm, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, and that we may hear what you would have us to teach us from your word. Be with the preacher and teacher now, Lord that as your word goes forth, it would not return void, Lord, but would accomplish its purpose among all who hear it. We pray you would be glorified throughout this meeting. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Howard, you're giving me uh, way too much credit because it hasn't been six years. It's only been about three, and uh, it is quite stunning when you consider that we're entering into the last chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, we literally have been together in the book of Acts for almost three years, and um, not only that, uh, last night I was telling the kids as we're sitting around our Bible study that uh, we're nearing a hundred sermons, a hundred sermons from the book of Acts, and Seth said immediately, well, it should be way more than that if we've been in here almost three years, but you remember Elder Dean preaches, we've had other guest speakers, we've had, um, you know, again, topical sermons that we've done, but it is quite interesting. In fact, as I'm studying this last chapter of the book of Acts, I, I said it, it feels like we're, uh, how should we say, saying goodbye to a long-lost brother and close friend, because we've been in this so long, and it's such a glorious book in the Bible that the Lord saw fit, obviously, to, uh, to put in here. And it certainly has been, brethren, a most, if you will, needful and remarkable time, at least for me. And I pray for you 
as we sat together here in the classroom of Christ, and again, this is so important, brethren, sitting under the word of God, sitting in the classroom of Christ, as the spirit of God is teaching us, amen, these most important doctrines regarding his handiwork, the Father's handiwork, in raising up and building the local church. So often when you go into a church, brethren, it doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like what we've been going through for the last almost three years. And one of the things as a Bible-believing Christian, you want to look at the inspired examples, you want to look at the, if you will, and I you know, use my own little peon words, the church's perpetual polity. So in other words, how we've seen the church designed here in the book of Acts is something that goes on out into, out into all of history, that we should indeed be aligning the church, the local church, exactly as we've seen them do it here. So there's a perpetual polity. There's a permanent practice that we see here also in the book of Acts. So what the book of Acts was doing, what they were doing in the local church, we too then should be copying this, if you will, uh, mimicking what the church, the early church, did because its permanent practices have never changed. Acts chapter 2, right? They would gather together. They'd hear the word preached. They'd gather together for the meal. They'd gather around for fellowship. They would pray. And brethren, that goes on, again, as we said, a permanent practice within the church. It does not change, although men have changed, tried to change that. It's now, as we were talking this morning, become more of an entertainment show to a degree that in the Western churches so often the pastor gets up and then the, the, those who are in the fellowship in the morning sit by there idly as if I'm putting on some kind of a show. Brethren, this is not what the local church is designed to do. It is designed to build the believer up, amen, so that when we leave this place, that which we have heard the word of God here and the spirit of God as he applies that word to our hearts and lives, we live it out then outside of the church. And again, this, these practices will never change. And finally, brethren, if my little mind, the way it thinks, it's persistent peculiarity. There is a persistent peculiarity that is we find within the pages of the book of Acts. And what that is, it's the characteristics of each individual believer who makes up the local church. So in other words, the word of God should be having an impact on us. When we're hearing the word of God, we should become more and more peculiar, not in an odd, weird sense way, but in a peculiar people, a possession of God that he owns and that he is fashioning after the image of Christ. This ultimately is the end is what we see. So we see these, these three things that we can apply over and over again in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in the church that we, the Lord has been so gracious to make us a part of. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, It is the duty of every Christian. Nay, it is the instinct of his spiritual life. It is the instinct, brother, and get a hold of this, the instinct of one's spiritual life, if you will, to avow the faith that he has received from God. So in other words, when God saves you, he gives you the gift of faith, he converts you, he changes your heart, the Spirit of God regenerates you, and this then is the instinct of the true believer, is to come and to be a part of the local church, if you will. And then Spurgeon says this, in avowing it, he finds himself associated with others, who have made the same profession, and he then assists them in the holy labor. 
Again, brethren, can I just say this? This is what we've been seeing Paul doing, amen? The sovereignty of God and, the, if you will, the, 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 the man's accountability. All along the way, we've seen those two working together as God is building the local churches, as he's growing them here, as we've seen so uh, clearly in the book of Acts. Brethren, the bride of Christ, the church, every believing one who has ever uh, who who's ever believed and whom he has been purchased by Christ's blood, we are indeed to this very hour. And this, again, is the thing that I keep coming back to. We keep seeing it again. All of these things, the persistent practices, the peculiarities, all of these things that we see here in the book of Acts, this to this very hour, we are God's divine beneficiaries of what we've been reading, of what we've been studying, of what we've been seeing. We are indeed... Divine beneficiaries, all those things that we've read, that we've heard, that we've studied over the last, Howard, I thank you for giving me the six years that, you know, I, I, you know, that would be something that Spurgeon would have done or, you know, one of these great preachers of old, they would spend a lot longer in these books. People think we have a long church service, brethren. It is nothing compared to how they used to do it. In fact, I would be in favor of going back to that a little bit, amen, making it a little longer. It's funny how man has replaced the Lord's Day with their day. What do they have going on? What am I doing? What time do I need to be out of here? What time do I need to be out the door, amen? We've got six other days, brethren, to set our own schedules. Think of this for just a moment. If you had six days to do whatever you wanted, but one day God biblically has called us to come and to gather together, to come out of the world, to gather around the Lord's table, to hear the word preached, to sing songs, and to edify one another. What a great percentage that is, amen? I mean, it's a stunning thing, and yet, people leave, people get upset, because we go, what, to 12.30 sometimes? Brethren, come on now. Come on, what are we doing what is happening? What is happening to us? We must be careful as we consider the Lord's day. Now look there at verse number 1. The Bible says there, Acts chapter 28, verse number 1, the Bible says, And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita, or Malta, or St. Paul's Bay, as they call it today, literally, because obviously of what is obviously what has taken place, amen? Now, what's interesting here is, we begin this morning the way we ended last Lord's Day morning, amen, with Luke's inspired confirmation of God's promise. And again, this is the theme. This is what we've been seeing in Paul's life. And I know here goes Pastor Mike again. He's that broken record that every last man, all 276 of them, would and did arrive safely. Amen, on the shore without one hair falling from their heads. Remember, that was his sovereign promise that he made to them. You stay with the ship. When the ship breaks apart, those who could swim, jump in. Those who can, grab the boards and get safely aboard. And this is exactly what we saw happen last week. In fact, our religious affections, brother, are drawn to, the, to a word that you, Luke uses not once, not twice, not three times. Now, brother, we always say, how many times does God have to say it? Before it's true, once. But when, when the Holy Ghost says one time, two times, three times, that draws our attention, doesn't it, brother? And your religious affection should look at the word and go, that's drawing my affection. The word is escaped. And I want you to see this again, just by way of remembrance. Again, this is the third time in this text, in, this, in these few verses, that this word that is used by Luke as the Spirit leads him to. Look at verse 44 of chapter 27. Again, remember, I said we're taking up where we left off. 
The Bible says in the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Now, verse number one, we just read it. Look there if you would. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Mylita. Now, look at verses four and five. He uses it again. And this is an important word, brethren, as we consider our text. Look at verse number four. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. It's interesting, as we were reading again this text last night together as a family, Seth stopped us as we were looking at this and he said, hey, you know what? God protected Paul. Yes, Seth. Yes, brethren. Yes, this is exactly what that word escaped means. Not once, not twice, but three times again we see this. Amen. That word literally means it is, we find it here in the divine passive voice. And again, that gets down into the Greek a little bit. But if you don't, you really have a hard time understanding what this word means. The divine passive voice. In other words, as we have seen, God has sovereignly protected them, brought them safely through as we saw last week, not because they used any kind of their own nautical skills, not because they used any of their own kind of skills, brethren, but why? Any such thing like that, but because the Lord God, the Lord God himself, who through his angel had promised to protect, to bring them safely through, amen, all of these things. As we have seen, even in verses 4 and 5, when we look at that word escape, same word, even as we see there in verses 4 and 5, the venomous beast, the viper, comes out and bites Paul's hand. He shakes it off. And where does he end up in verse 16 of chapter 28? In Rome, exactly where God said he would be. So again, brethren, we see this consistency. We see this consistency in, in Scripture as we, as we move along through the text. Now look there at verse number 2 of chapter 28. So the, the, the context is laid out. Verse number 2 the good news comes here in verse number 2. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled the fire and received us every one because, because of the persistent rain and because of the cold. Well, we see this word barbarous, and we, again, in our English, really have no idea what that means. We would define the word as someone who's kind of a, you know, we'd call them like a knuckle-dragger, someone who's hanging out somewhere, some kind of a discreet character. But that's not here. The natives of Malta were exclusively and primarily of physician and ancestry. They were regarded by the Greeks and Romans as barbarous. What does that mean? Again, not in a derogatory sense like we would have defined it, but simply people who spoke a foreign language. And again, this is what they're telling. They show up at Malta. You remember, brethren, that when they first arrived there, they did not know where they were at. And if you go look at a map... Again, you should go look at a map sometime. I wish I could have blasted it up here. For you to see as they lost control of the ship, those 400, remember we talked about 475 miles that they traveled across the, the Adriatic Sea? It's a stunning thing to follow the path while well, they ended up here at Malta. Again, God's divine direction, his complete control over the winds and the waves and where they would end up. But again, we see this here, God's kindness, don't we? His, his uh, if you will, his kindness towards them. But I want you to see a biblical definition. Again, the barbarian. We think of a barbarian, again, as someone who lives out, you know, out in the hills somewhere and he's got a couple of teeth missing and this, those sorts of things. This is not at all what Paul is saying. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, a biblical definition of this word that we see here. Again, those who speak 
a foreign language. And again, in the early church, they were having trouble with those who were speaking in tongues. They were doing it out of order. They were doing it just completely in an unbiblical fashion. And so Paul has to correct that like he always does and always did. You think of all the troubles. I, yesterday I tried to, to Google uh, all the troubles that Paul addressed in the churches. And you guys can't believe the PDFs that pop up. It's a stunning thing. One thing you learn, men have not changed. Nothing has changed. We're still the same. We're still dealing with the same issues. We're still dealing. We were thinking this morning in, in Bible study, we were talking about marriage and the, and the early church fathers and their, their unbalanced view of marriage. And then I was thinking about when Wendy and I were first married. Back in the church we were in in Minot, we actually had a man and a woman in the church leave their spouses in the church and move into a camper in this guy's backyard. And we had to deal with that. You have to deal with those things. Men have not changed. And so here again, Paul is simply saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Remember now, verse number 8, if you would look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look at verse number 8. Look what the Bible says. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle. So in other words, if somebody says something, I don't understand it, I'm not going to be able to be prepared for the battle. So likewise, he says in verse 9, he except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. So again here, they're babbling along, nobody knows what they're saying, and he's just simply using this illustration. You're speaking in the air. No one knows, there's no value at all as you're speaking here in tongues in the local congregation. Then he says this, There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if ye know not the meaning of the voice, I shall, I shall be unto him that speaketh a what? A barbarian. There it is. Someone who speaks a language, I have no idea what he's saying. He says it again. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. So in other words, this is what Paul is saying. We landed on the island of Malta. Here's this group of men and people who are just a bunch of people who speak this language that we cannot understand. And all the Greeks, and as we know the Romans, considered everyone who spoke another language besides theirs to be a barbarian, one who spoke a language that they could not understand. Luke, again, tells us that these barbarous people, all of them, showed all of the 276 shipwrecked crew members no little kindness. Think of this, brother, and what that would mean. Which, again, brings to our minds the providence of God, who indeed, uh, if you will, shipwrecked them on an island with kind and hospitable inhabitants. Think of that for a moment. Again, God caring for his people. We see, again, just in the minute details, God taking care of his people. You think of the early founding of our own nation. Think, brethren, how far we have fallen. You can't imagine it. But here, the settlers come, amen? They're coming across, you know, 1492, sailing across the ocean blue. You know, they get here, and it's a stunning thing. They go to Holland, then they get to America, and they run into a Christian Indian who speaks English. Stunning, amazing thing that God would do, amen? Bring Squanto along. And they're looking at him going, what? He goes, yeah, I learned the language from the, the, the slave owner who owned me. He taught me the Bible. I became a Christian, and he taught me the language. Here, here he is standing there helping our fathers, our forefathers in English. Stunning thing. But here, they're barbarians. They don't speak a lick of the language. And here God in his kindness showed them again, giving them hospitable inhabitants of 
the land. Quite a stunning thing. Now, look back here at Acts chapter 28. Look at verses 3 and 4. So we see again the working of God, and this has really been the glorious thing through all of this. Again, seeing God working in a most practical way as we apply that to our own hearts and our own minds. Look there, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, they came a viper. There came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man hath escaped, is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast and felt no harm. Now it's an interesting thing, brethren, as we consider these verses. Because of the cold and because of the rain and because of what they had just been through, the barbarians indeed were kind to them. In fact, the Bible says, showed them utter kindness. They lit a fire and as Paul pitched in, as he's gathering in the wood, the firewood as well, a viper, the Bible says, came out and uh, lacked its jaws, clamped its jaws onto his hand. Now it's interesting here, brethren. This again, this is just me. My brain thinks theologically, and so what do I do? I look up and see how many times this word viper is used. It is a stunning thing when you consider that this word viper is only used five times in all of the New Testament, four other times, once by John the Baptist, and three times by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which is quite stunning when you consider this thing. In fact, this beast, this viper, if you will, it's a stunning thing to consider. Look at Matthew chapter 23, just for a moment. I want you to see one of the other times. Again, as I said, the Lord Jesus used it three times. John the Baptist used it one time. But again, as we look here and consider this portion of Scripture, it is such, an, such a glorious thing to see how systematic the Bible really is. And it helps us to understand how dangerous the poison snake really was, amen, and what was actually taking place as this clasped on, if you will, to the Apostle Paul's hand. Look there, if you would, at chapter 23. Look at verse number 15. Many of us know what's taking place here. Jesus is addressing who? Who is Jesus addressing in Matthew chapter 23? He's addressing the religious people. He's, religious, he's addressing the people who are supposed to be the shepherds of the flock of Israel. He's not addressing sinners here. He's not, well, they're sinners, but he's not addressing them. But you look in the text. He's using language like, you hypocrites. You what? Well, if you read down there, you'll see that. Verse 15, look what he says to them. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors on a stage. For ye encompass sea and land and make one proselyte. And when he is made, listen, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Wow. Imagine that. The Lord Jesus Christ talking to the religious leaders who are supposed to be the, the shepherds of the flock of Israel. And he uses, if you will, a Hebrewism. It is an expressing way of expressing an excessive, wicked person. One who claims hell as his home, as his mother, and devil as his father. Literally, that's what that means. So he's addressing them in a most amazing way. 
you go make a disciple and you make him twice twofold a child of hell as yourself. And he goes on there. Look at verse 17. Ye fools and blind. Verse 19. Ye fools and blind. On and on it goes. I mean, it's an amazing thing as he addresses these religious people, if you will. Verse 24. Verse 25. Verse 26. Thou blind uh, Pharisees. 27 calls them hypocrites. 29 he calls them hypocrites again. And as you get down there to verse number 31, look what he says. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Look at verse 33. Ye serpents, ye what? Ye ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape? There's that word again, amen. The very word we're looking at in our text where God indeed brought them safely through. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Now think of this for a moment, brethren. Think of what Jesus has just said to them. Again, the idea here, as we look at this, the only other place. What is he saying concerning these Pharisees? The Pharisees were indeed vipers. Not because they were skinny, had no legs, and slithered around on the ground, although you can see him doing that. He called them vipers because they were indeed spreading poisonous doctrine everywhere they went. The idea that, we, that uh, Luke is using here, this venomous beast, this viper that grabbed on was indeed injecting and flowing poison like you can't believe through the veins of Paul. Just like he uses this terminology here, these Pharisees, they're, they're just absolute vipers. They're spreading dangerous, poisonous, unholy, ungodly doctrine everywhere you go. And this is literally what the word means. When the barbarians see this, they saw the viper hanging from Paul's hand, if you will. They said, there is no doubt this guy's a murderer. There is no escaping what's just happened to him. And brethren, when you think about it, you see this, you understand this, right? They're looking at him. They're calling him a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess of justice has not allowed him to escape this. They were indeed extremely superstitious people. (laughs) We have a lot of superstitious people around here. I was involved with some stuff yesterday. A lot of superstition going on. A lot of statues, a lot of weird things taking place. It's a stunning thing. And yet that's what these men were. They were extremely superstitious. So they assumed that vengeance had caught up with Paul. But a stunning thing takes place, again, seeing Paul's, uh, God's protection of Paul, as the word escaped means. Look there at verses 5 and 6, Acts 28, look at verses 5 and 6. Look what happens. I mean, it's a stunning thing. I mean, if you're a superstitious person, you'd be sitting there, and verse number 5 says, and he shook off the beast into the fire and felt what? No harm. There's no harm. But look what they're doing. How be it? They looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him they changed their minds and said that he was a god now brethren do you understand again from our text how poisonous this snake really was this viper really was you get bit by some snakes amen you can get to the hospital you got a couple minutes you get on down there i mean a gardener snake can bite you nothing happens they're literally watching this man get There's a viper, a snake hanging off of his arm, and they're thinking, he's going to swell immediately. He's going to die almost suddenly and immediately. That is an instantaneous poison that is extremely poisonous. And what happens? 
They're all stunned. They're standing there looking at the Apostle Paul. Well, he hasn't swollen up. He hasn't fallen dead. He hasn't done anything. What's going on here? Well, then he must be some kind of a god of some sort. This is what they're thinking. In fact, those suspicious, if you will, superstitious onlookers are stunned as Paul shakes off that viper completely unharmed. Again, no sudden swelling, no falling down dead, which again, as I said, tells us how poisonous this viper really was. In fact, we notice in the text that Paul is quite unconcerned. Think of this for a moment, brother. Paul is quite unconcerned with what has just happened. He shakes it off, and it's an amazing thing when you consider where we're at in the dispensation of time as the church is being built. Now, I want us to go to a portion of Scripture again just for definition. Amen? And it's a portion of Scripture that many today have falsely said We shouldn't have this in our Bible. It shouldn't be in there. In fact, I'll never preach on it. Right, brethren, the long ending of Mark, right? They want to get rid of that. But yet, in the long ending of Mark, we see this, if you will, this continuing apostolic sign gifts. They continue on and on. This is what we're seeing. Again, many of us are familiar with some of the churches down south, and they literally have snakes in their church. Have you seen this? Uh, just recently, I saw one of, the, one of the pastors down there who was trying to apply Mark chapter 16 to them. He gets bit by the snake, and they said, hey, we got to get you to the doctor. His finger rots off, and the next thing you know, he's dead. Now, brethren, listen to me. This is the Apostle Paul who has been sent by God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen? And he is seeing, again, what is an apostle? We're going to define that here just quickly for us. But I want you to see this quickly. Look at Mark chapter 16. Again, as we consider the definition, uh, the context of the scripture here, look at Mark chapter 16. Gloriously, brethren, yes, it should be in our Bibles. It's been in our Bibles for 1900, over 1900 years. You start filly-fallying around with this stuff, and pretty soon John 5 will be gone, John 8 will be gone. We're just going to start taking all the texts out that some of the pointy-head liberals think shouldn't be in there, but they've always been here. And again, this is another uh, glorious picture of the consistency of Scripture. Again, giving us an inclination as to why Paul is bit by a poisonous snake, and he's completely unconcerned with it, completely and totally unconcerned. They're all stunned, but Paul just, he just goes. In fact, it's interesting because the one who they thought was going to get sick in the end ends up healing those who are sick. Think of this, brethren, the Lord's glorious work in this. We can't even begin to understand that. I want you to see this. Mark chapter 16, look at verse number 17. The Lord said this, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. Do you see a little bit of a pattern here in the early church? Yes, they cast out devils. They spoke in tongues. And now we see this. Uh, the Bible says, and they shall take up serpents, and if they drink anything, uh, any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them or harm them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall what? Recover. Do you see what we're seeing in our text? We're seeing a man who, if you look in the book of Acts, and we can go back, we've looked at it uh, as we work on this together. These signs that Jesus tells us of here in the Gospel of Mark are exactly the things that have occurred <laughs> All along our almost three-year journey in the book of Acts. 
Think of it again, brother. Let me remind you again. Acts chapter 2, they spoke in tongues. Exactly what Jesus said they would do. They, if you will, cast out devils. Acts chapter 16, we see that. They cast out devils. Exactly what Jesus said they would do. And yes, brethren, here Paul is bitten by a poisonous, if you will, viper. One of the most poisonous kinds of that era, of that era and of that island. In fact, it was so poisonous, again, they're standing there waiting for this to happen. I mean, that's instantaneously. Start swelling, Paul. Well, he doesn't swell. It's fall over dead, Paul. He doesn't fall over dead. He must be a god then. No, actually, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said that his apostles would do this, that this would be signs to them, that they would take the gospel out to the world, and this would be signs that would follow the apostles. He's completely and totally un. Concerned with that. Our three-year feast, as we've been along here, we've seen God the Father, Christ the Son, keeping their promises, and the Holy Ghost, brethren, listen, the Trinity of God at work, the Holy Ghost manifesting them in real earthly time. This is what we see. What a glorious thing for the child of God to get a hold of and understand. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are indeed working out their glorious purposes in the church. It's a stunning and beautiful thing as you see this. Now again, I want you to keep our text in mind, because as we turn back to Acts chapter 28, as I said, the one who they thought was going to be sick, the one who they thought was going to fall down dead, in fact, is the one who heals those who are sick. It's really quite a stunning work of God. Again, the Trinity of God at work, showing forth who, who he is. Paul, if you will, this glorious preacher that he has used, this instrument that he saved on the road to Damascus, one who was indeed on his way to kill Christians, to bind them up, to do everything he could against God. In the end, as we get towards the end of his life, and again, he gets to Rome, and we know Second Timothy, the last letter that he wrote, the last inspired words, <laughs> Again, it's a stunning thing that the Lord had made clear to him when he was going to die. The Lord had made clear to him. And the Bible says that everybody deserted him. Think of this for a moment. Think, think of that for a moment, brethren. Boy, sometimes the pastor or the elders can become discouraged. You know that? It gets very, very discouraging sometimes. And yet we see the Apostle Paul, who the, va- the la- very last inspired words that we have from him, everybody's deserted me except one. And now who's that? God the Father. And he's telling them, hey, hey uh, Luke, bring, your, bring, my, bring the word of God here that I'm working on. Those are the things. But everybody else is gone except one who saved him from the mouth of the lion, the Bible says in his last inspired words. And we see here again this glorious working of God the Father in this man who he saved, who was a, a injurious to the church, who hated Christians, and God converted him and saved him. And this is where he ends. Look what it says there, if you would, at verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, as we look at them together. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief men of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. Again, I, I, you know, what can I say again about God's, if you will, kindness to his people? Verse number 8, And it came to pass that the father of Publius, lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and, what? Healed him. 
So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. And look what God does. Verse 10, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Again, in the end, we see God again caring for his people. Now we notice here, don't we, that the scene changed from the beach where they were just at to the home here, if you will, of the chief official of the land. His father, the Bible says, lays sick with a fever of a bloody flux. Now, historically, if you look what was going on, and I was thinking of Dean and his family, who are shortly going to be leaving to India again. I was thinking about this as you consider what is happening. It appears here that his father is suffering from what they call the Malta fever and dysentery. (laughs) It's an amazing thing, which has been tied now to the goat milk of the Maltese goats that were there. He is laying there sick, the bloody flux, dysentery. He's got this Malta fever, amen? And brethren, when you got that, it lasted normally anywhere from five to six months. So when you got sick, you were sick. This is what you dealt with. But here we see, again, Paul simply going there, and he prayed first, and then he goes in and he does what? What the apostles were said Jesus said they would do. He goes in there and lays his hands on them, and it was healed immediately. Immediately this man was healed. And again, brethren, you consider this. You consider what God is doing here when, you, when we look at this text. Well, again, he's doing exactly what the sovereign sender, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent him to do and said he would do. I want you to see this. I want you to see the similarities between what happened here with Paul and what happened with the sovereign sender, what I call the sovereign sender, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sent him to Malta, who sent him there to do these things. Look at Luke chapter 4. Again, we just see this uh, again for a, a nice little definition of what we see here. And I want you to see the similarities. I want you to see here what happened when Paul did it, and then we see here again what happened when Jesus did it. We see these similarities, and there's a reason for that. Look at verse number 38. Luke chapter 4. Look at verse number 38 there, if you would. Look what the Bible says to us here. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. I told you, Brother uh, Howard, this was going to come out. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great, what? Fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now verse number 40 again draws our attention. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had been sick. Do you see the similarities here? It's the relatives who are being uh, the, the, the keepers. Those who are in the home, it's the relative of those who are invited in the home. It's a stunning thing. It's the same thing. It was Publius's father-in-law, or father. Here it's Simon's uh, wife. And as we say, right, he was married. <laughs> okay. Peter was married, all right? You can try and sneak around all that you want. But again, Jesus here is doing this glorious work. And again, we see that. Uh, the Bible says, Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands every one of them and healed them. So again, brethren, we see the benefits, don't we? We notice in both cases, the relative of the healer's host is healed. Again, this is what we see here, brethren, so gloriously. Amen. And then that blessing is extended to others because the relative gets healed, and then what? All those who are at Malta bring the sick, and Paul lays his hands on them and heals them. Why? 
because Paul was a great man, because Paul and, and, uh, you know, took it of himself. You know, it's one of those things. Paul never claimed to be a, a healer, brethren, although he was because he had the power of God that was working through him. Amen. And you know who he always gave credit to? Always to God the Father, always to the Lord Jesus Christ, always to the Spirit of God, who always points men to Christ. Amen. This is the way it works. This is the way we should and certainly do things. Paul the Apostle is sent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, it is well, I can't speak today. It is confirmed to be so by the same sign gifts, as I said earlier, the sovereign sender did. The same exact thing. Of all the things, brother, and think of this for a moment as we bring our text to a close this morning. Of all the things that took place while Paul was in Malta for three months, and we're going to see that next week, Lord willing, when we get into verse 11. After three months, they leave. But think of all the things that took place when Paul was there. All the preaching that took place. All the different things that took place when he was there in Malta. We notice that the physician, the physician here, is writing down a healing that takes place. Think of that for a moment. What is he trying to say? Again, he's affirming that the man who landed on the island was a preacher of Christ. And that what he's preaching is true. And that when one trusts and believes in him alone, you are saved. These are the signs. This is why they were there. This is what they were used for, brethren. I wish. I really do. <laughs> I wish. Can I use liberal language? I wish. Every so-called faith healer who claims that they can just at a whim call a healing to themselves. I wish they would go to every hospital every children's hospital, everyone, and do what Paul just did here. You must be one of the most uncompassionate, evil people in the world to claim you can do this, and you don't go do it. It is stunning to see. Stunning to see. Here again, we see, don't we, God's glorious purposes in all of it. It is because he comes in my name. He's preaching me. He's doing the very things that I said in the long ending of Mark that they would do consistently, gloriously, and for all the glory of God. Amen? What a blessing that is. It's such a blessing to grasp that and get a hold of that and understand that, brethren. When you do that, it does what John the Baptist said. Remember John the Baptist? He must become what? Greater. I must become lesser. Every preacher, every teacher of the Bible should grab a hold of that one and understand that it isn't us. It is the work God is doing through his church. Amen. That great and glorious, salvific things take place. This is what it is, brethren. We grasp it and get a hold of it. It is, as we say, a glorious biblical truth that will indeed set the preacher free. Yep. Because it's not about you. It's not about how well you speak. I stammer and stumble all the time. It's about what God is doing. It's about what the Spirit of God is saying. How he's applying that to your heart. And applying that to our lives. Amen. And there are many. There are many things that we have certainly learned. And gleaned in these last almost three years. Well we've got a couple left. As we bring it to a close. And then Lord willing. Uh. We'll be going into the book of First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, which is a very, again, practical, 
uh, if you will, preparatory books for us as the church. Amen? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we rejoice with you. We thank you for our text this morning. We thank you for the Bible that uh, is indeed inspired as you led the writers to write it. It has indeed been preserved down through